I have with me in the studio Professor Peter Lepping, who's a consultant psychiatrist and uh, an honorary professor at Bangor University in Wales in the UK, as well as at Mysore Medical College in India. Peter, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Hello. Peter, you're here to talk to us about delusional infestation, which is uh, the subject of an article that you've recently written for us. Would you like to start off by telling us what it is? Yes, of course. Delusional infestation is a relatively rare disorder which is characterized by a patient's fixed belief that they have uh, some kind of living or non-living pathogen either on their skin, on their body or in their immediate environment. Delusional infestation used to be called delusional parasitosis but we have found out in recent studies that what people identify now as an alleged pathogen has fundamentally changed over, over years which isn't uncommon when we look at how delusional themes develop but we now have only relatively few people who come and say they are infested by parasites. We have now a quarter of people who actually think they are infested by non-living pathogens. Mm. And parasites have been sort of put into the, into the background. They're, they're, they're still common, but they're not as predominant as they used to be, which is why we suggested to change the name to delusion infestation, which is now the internationally accepted uh, diagnosis. Okay, so how do such patients present? There are different types of presentations. Um, 40% of these patients have a primary delusional belief, which means that they have that one delusion and are otherwise in, in no way ill. And then 60% have secondary delusion infestation, so they have this particular delusion on top of another illness. And typical presentations would include a belief that you are infested with either a small living uh, parasite or other kind of animal or possibly in, in environmental thread or a non-living thread that people often think come out of their skin, live underneath their skin, might be living on their skin. We also had some examples where people believed that the whole environment was infested with either living or non-living pathogens. Now this could be as large as rats or it could be as little as uh, imagined pathogens hitherto unknown to medical science which people either can or can't see. Okay, and they often describe quite abnormal sensations, don't they? Such as itching or stinging or, or crawling, insects crawling out of them. That's right. Uh, itching is very common. Another very common one is that they have crawling sensations, but very often they also describe that they can see things coming out of their skin or out of their ears. I have had uh, patients who would, for example, say that they believe that these pathogens have actually entered other organs like their lungs, for example. So people have 
a lot of different types of bodily sensations associated with with this belief of being infested. Mm. And it, it's clearly quite a distressing condition. Um, but we ought to also make the distinction now, I think, between this disorder and the the common phenomenon of formication, uh, for instance, in, in perimenopausal women. Would you like to tell us how we can make this distinction clinically? The delusional infestation is clearly a delusional disorder. And the science of a delusional disorder is that the patient has a fixed belief that cannot really be shaken easily at all and that is by and large against any kind of scientific evidence. Whereas other types of formications are symptoms that arise whilst the patient does not actually attach any any particular belief of infestation to them. Yes, and and um, the phenomenon, the experience of formication, is described usually as a sense of ants or insects crawling on on the skin. Um, and usually, menopausal women are very happy to entertain an alternative explanation. Usually, quite relieved, aren't they? Yes, the same is true for cocaine users who who can have similar um, symptoms. And they are often quite relieved if they're being told that these will go away with a dose of haloperidol and if they stop taking cocaine. Mm. So, so again, we have, a, uh, we have symptoms on the one side and on the other side, we have a very fixed belief that these symptoms are caused by a pathogen. Okay. And that is that is the big difference really. Yes. One is a delusion and one is a description of a symptom that they readily attribute to the explanation that the doctor gives them. That's very useful. Um, would you like to also uh, tell us what other drugs or medical conditions might be associated with this? Yes. Uh, very commonly uh, we see delusional infestation in certain psychiatric illnesses. For example, dementia would be the most common one. We also see it in delirium, we see it in depression, and we see it in schizophrenia. In terms of neurological conditions, it is most commonly after stroke, uh, but we have a lot of other medical conditions that affect the brain or that cause puritus, which will also be associated with delusion infestation. For example, certain cancers that uh, are associated with puritus are commonly associated. Equally, diabetes, particularly when it, when it causes neuro, neuro, neuropathies. And then we have the problem of substance misuse because any kind of stimulant, cocaine, amphetamines, even cannabis, have all been uh, known to have triggered delusional infestation. Then we have dopaminergic medications and very often neglected are antibiotics. I have personally seen a number of cases with antibiotics, particularly uh, erythromycin, uh, when people suddenly develop these symptoms, but as a proper delusional believed. Uh, so the, there was a fixed belief it was clear delusional infestation, but it was linked with the start of erythromycin and it stopped when erythromycin was stopped. 
Okay, so if we suspect the diagnosis in somebody, we really need to be looking at their drug history, um, both therapeutic and social drugs. Absolutely, very important. Mm. Okay, so your article also talks about the fact that this is a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, What do we need to do if we suspect that it might be delusional infestation? What are the steps we need to take to exclude the other possibilities? Well, we've presented a list uh, which we feel a reasonable dermatologist or microbiologist would would use to exclude real infestations. And uh, they would include things like a full blood count uh, to look at eosinophils in particular, but also at, uh, at high white counts. We would look at things like um, uh, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, C-reactive protein, serum creatinine and electrolytes. And we would also look at uh, fasting glucose when because of possible diabetes. And we would also suggest a, a dr- drug screen, a urine drug screen for illicit drug use because not everyone will be forthcoming with an admission of social drug use. In, in some contexts, we would also do serology for Borrelia, sometimes uh, treponema, hepatitis, and HIV, because they can also associated, be associated with delusion infestation. Allergy testing is something we do very rarely, and often people present with allergy testing results, which are by and large negative or have minor positive results. But vitamin B12 and folate levels can be interesting because um, when you have low vitamin B12 and folate, it can actually cause purities, which of course then can cause uh, delusional infestation as a, as a secondary problem. Mm. Okay. Now, having excluded other medical problems and um, let's say the patient has no uh, is not taking any other medications or, or other drugs. How does one go about suggesting that there might be an alternative explanation and a very different sort of treatment to what they're seeking to patients, given the fact that by definition these patients have very fixed beliefs that it is um, an infestation? Yes, we this the delusional intensity is often very, very high in monodelusional disorders. So people are particularly convinced that they have what they believe they have and nothing else. And what we find in our clinic is that those people where you can get a little bit of a chink in the armor to persuade them that alternative explanations might be possible are usually those with the best prognosis. In other words, if you can shift their delusional intensity a little bit, you are often onto a winner. But those who are absolutely fixed and remain absolutely fixed are often the ones that will not uh, really accept any alternative explanations. So what we do is that Firstly, we investigate everything they bring in. So people often bring in what we call a specimen sign, which is alleged proof of the infestation. 
This is normally things like skin, skin debris or dust, but they will be convinced that that is the pest or the, the pathogen. So we always in, investigate those, and we do that very carefully. Then we present the results to them, and that is the most difficult consultation period, because then you have to say to people, look, we haven't found anything. And then we start a process where we say, where we reassure people that we are absolutely convinced that they have the symptoms they are describing, but they have come to us in order to get an explanation, and we want to keep an open mind as to what the reason might be. So we normally talk about the possibility of an infestation we haven't seen or found, but then we introduce the possibility of other explanations. And other explanations would include the possibility of a brain disorder that would give people those kind of symptoms. It would also uh, include other, other possibilities, other medical illnesses. So we, we basically very carefully start to introduce the possibility of other options. And we do that by saying that we really want to know what is causing you the symptoms and not just look at the symptoms in themselves. And most people that we see can see that there is a point in doing so. So even though they're not convinced that they have something else, they can see that there is a point in doing so. And that cr seems to create a degree of trust that then allows at a, at a later stage, usually at the next consultation, to go further into, look, we've now excluded everything we can think of. So if this is not a hitherto unknown pathogen, it is now likely, and on the basis of probability, most likely that this is a, a disorder of the brain which we are well familiar with and we can treat. So that's the process that we use in order to persuade people. Yes, it sound, certainly sounds a lot more constructive than falling into the trap of almost um, colluding with the patient or even practicing rather defensive medicine where one might say, well, we've, we've looked, we've looked for other causes and these tests are negative and the patient will often respond, well, you just haven't looked hard enough. And what about? And then, you know, proceeding to a cascade of more and more esoteric tests that perhaps they've researched on the internet. Indeed. Peter, tell me what we should avoid saying or doing um, with patients who have inf uh, delusional infestation. The mainstay of your success with these patients will be about creating trust between you and that person. Because the only reason why the patient will take the medication is because they trust you. And the only way of helping them is if you persuade them to take medication. So we should really not use any kind of uh, confrontational argument about who is right. It's much easier to agree to disagree at an early stage and try and move the discussion to something else. So getting into prolonged arguments is very unhelpful. The other thing that is very unhelpful is 
to say things like, be happy it's not an infection. Because the person is convinced it's an infection. So they're not going to be happy by hearing it's not an infection. So we would not use phrases like that. We would just very sort of uh, simply explain what our results have shown and that it has not shown a known infection at this point. The other thing that's very unhelpful is to say it's psychogenic and yes, even though we think we don't do it, we still have patients who say, my GP said, well, it's all in your head. So it's very important to always make sure that we believe the patient's symptoms and this is all about finding out what's causing the symptoms. So it's better to be as neutral and objective as possible and give them the plain facts. We never reinforce the patient's false belief by giving them treatments for what they think is wrong with them because that will only make a later change to an antipsychotic much more difficult. What are the treatments that we know will work? If it's a true delusion, we know that antipsychotics work. So whilst we haven't got a lot of RCTs on this subject because it's extremely difficult to recruit anyone uh, into research because we would have to then get valid consent, which means that we would have to tell them that we think they have delusional infestation. But we have a lot of case series and we've actually developed a way of analyzing cases to get to the best possible result, which is not RCT-based. And those results suggest that if we look at first-generation antipsychotics, things, uh, medications like pimazide or haloperidol or sulpiride or depot medication, we have very high success rates and we get remission rates of up to 80%. When we look at the second-generation antipsychotics, something like amisulpride, or we have the most data for olanzapine and risperidone, we will get to response rates of up to 80%, but there is a lower remission rate. And we normally use much lower doses than we do in schizophrenia, so people usually have far fewer side effects than they would have if we had to use doses uh, similar to what we use in schizophrenia. Now, given that many GPs would not necessarily feel confident um, prescribing such drugs on their own or starting such drugs on their own, uh, yet on the other hand, uh, having patients who really might not entertain the, the um, possibility that seeing a psychiatrist would be helpful, what would your advice be to GPs? My advice would be that people should start with amisulpride 200 milligrams, which could then be increased to 400 milligrams daily. Alternatively, they could try olanzapine 5 milligrams, which could be increased to 7.5 or a maximum of 10. In the, in the elderly, uh, those would have to be halved. Mm -hmm. 
And this brings us to the the point about risk assessment that you make in your article, um, that some patients may put themselves or others at risk with uh, the use of chemicals in their skin or because of suicidal ideation, because the, the symptoms are so distressing. Would you like to comment on that? Yes, there's a number of risks associated with delusional infestation. Some of them are very serious. The first issue is that of what you would do if you thought you were infested by something that no doctor will identify for you. Most people will go on the internet or they will get advice or they will try to build a device of some description and they will try to get rid of the pathogen. So we have a lot of people who uh, try to cut the pathogen out of their bodies We have a lot of people who use pesticides or bleach on their skin. So you get all sorts of difficulties because of that. Then on top of that, you have uh, a high degree of distress and a high degree of desperation. So there are people who will develop secondary depression and anxiety, and there are people who will then become suicidal. That suicidality would be the same as you would have in a normal depressed patient. So the way you would assess that risk is very similar. You are very open and very transparent in approaching that risk. You would ask the patient directly about their suicidal thoughts. You could use phrases like, you have now been distressed for a very long time. Some people would feel quite desperate that there is no help. Have you ever thought about possibly harming yourself in some way? And that will normally open up a discussion that will allow you to do a good risk assessment. We are particularly interested in this part because this is what patients and carers actually told us when we asked them, they said it's very important not to forget how distressed, anxious and depressed people can get when they suffer from these symptoms for a prolonged period of time. So this is something that has come into our awareness by actually asking patients and carers themselves about their priorities. on, On top of that, I should also mention that Sometimes you can have delusion infestation as a shared delusion. So there will be another person or even more than one other person thinking they are also infected and they may then also do similar things to their skin or their body to get rid of the alleged infestation. And what is even more problematic is when we have a delusion by proxy, which means that the person who has the delusion often a parent thinks that their children or one child is infested. And we've seen this relatively often in our clinical practice. And then you really have to go into what does the person do to their children and do we have immediate uh, child protection issues on our hands. Mm, And that is a particularly worrying concern. So to summarize, we should consider this diagnosis of delusional infestation in anyone who presents with a fixed conviction that they're infested with either living or non-living organisms. 
After having excluded other medical conditions and uh, drugs that might give rise to this problem, of course, we should always exclude real infestations with an examination, ideally with a review by a dermatologist or an infectious disease specialist, as well as appropriate tests. Now, um, you say also very usefully that it's, it's critical that we engage the patient and acknowledge their distress without, however, reinforcing false beliefs. Um, and it's also important, of course, to uh, uh, avoid outright confrontation or, or dogmatic uh, disagreement because that's entirely uh, unhelpful as well. Um, it's also reassuring to know that there is available um, effective treatment. Um, you mentioned antipsychotic treatment, um, which may be offered as a means to alleviate symptoms. Um, even if patients may not be willing to consider seeing a psychiatrist. Does that sound a reasonable summary? Very much so, yes. Okay. Peter, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome.